welcome to our podcast. It comes to us courtesy of the Turo College Jacob D. Fuchsberg Law Center and the Turo Law Review. Our guests today are Ms. Robin Werner Dalio and Professor Rena Sipowitz. Attorney Dalio is an adjunct professor here at Turo and practices uh, and teaches and practices in the area of trust and estates and also elder law. She has her own firm. And so first I invite uh, Ms. Dalio to tell us about how she developed her interest in trust and estates and elder law. Okay, thank you and thanks for having me. Um, as a younger person, I was a paralegal at a family law firm that concentrated its practice in um, trust and estates and elder law. I decided to, um, to pursue my education and I went back to school. I'm a graduate of Toro Law School um, and I've, I've practiced exclusively in this area for the past 10 years. Um, and last year was fortunate to be able to go out on my own and, and start my own firm. So interestingly, um, and it's, it, it's important and um, timely for our podcast today, I, I started my firm during the COVID pandemic. So the issues that we we're discussing today, I, I dealt with firsthand. Um, and so I'm looking forward to our discussion. Thank you. It's our pleasure and as are we. And now Professor Sepowitz, a professor here at Turo, teaching in the area of property and trust and estate, uh, true expert in the field, uh, written and commented often uh, on matters relevant to these areas. And I would like to invite you, Professor Sepowitz, also to tell us how you began your career, your teaching, your practicing career in this area. I started practicing after graduating from law school as a litigator. And I practiced in the trust and estates as well as the intellectual property fields. And there is a, an intersection between the two since copyrights are uh, inheritable. I uh, developed, a, I started with an interest in the litigation side of estates practice and then also started practicing uh, mainly in estate planning and some administration when I decided that I wanted to teach, uh, which had always been an interest. When I came to Toro, I started teaching trusts and estates, then I taught the property class. And right now I'm teaching the honors trusts and estates class, which allows us to integrate doctrine and practical skills. So we have many simulations. We do quite a bit of drafting. And this year we've discussed some of the problems that are associated with COVID and estates practice. All right, and, and that's the perfect segue to our topic for today, because we do wanna talk about uh, practicing trust in estates and trust in estates issues during this time of COVID. So we can begin the substantive part of our discussion. Uh, and so the floor is yours. Okay, should I start Professor Sepulveda? Absolutely. Yes. Okay. Um, so, so from a practice standpoint, when the pandemic hit, what we quickly learned was that we needed to find a new way to, um, to handle things, a new way to communicate with our clients, a new way to um, get 
signatures on documents, um, a new way to to practice law. So we, um, as a as a, a group, we were so accustomed to having access to our clients wherever they were, um, to being able to have our clients come into our office, to having access to them if they were living in congregate care facilities, um, to being able to having our uh, witnesses there with us. Um, and all of a sudden that stopped. But, but what didn't stop was the, um, was the need to get the document signed and the need to continue with the estate planning. Very quickly, thankfully, the, um, uh, the governor's office responded with an emergency uh, order, an executive order um, that permitted uh, remote notarization and remote witnessing. And that together with um, Zoom recordings and Teams recordings and and iPhones and FaceTime allowed us to find a way to um, have our clients sign important documents, continue to execute wills. Um, we were able to draft powers of attorney um, and, and that was all being done remotely. And so I think um, what we've now learned over this past year is that while it, is it has been incredibly convenient it doesn't come without some concerns and caution. So I think um, Professor Seplowitz and I will will discuss that together. Okay, Professor Seplowitz, would you like to continue uh, introducing this topic for us? Certainly. Uh, as um, Robin and I have discussed, many of the problems, many of the solutions have caused and will continue to cause problems in the future. And we discuss these in class as well, because our students need to be prepared for them in practice, not just in during COVID, but afterwards. Uh, one of the concerns that we both have is with remote witnessing, remote execution, I should say remote execution, remote, um, not being in the same room as our client, not being able to assess whether the client who may be, although competent, may not be as fully competent as we would like. In other words, legally competent to execute a will, but may be uh, in early stages of dementia may be susceptible to the influence of some relatives. And as we've discussed, um, certainly uh, during uh, conversations outside of this podcast, and we'll discuss further here, not being in the same room does not allow us to make an assessment. Um, it doesn't allow us to know who is in the room with the, with the client, who may have spoken to the client, who may have told the client what to include in the will. These have always been concerns for estate planners, particularly when we're talking about older clients, clients who may be in nursing homes, who do not have the ability to think independently on their own. And 
it's something that we've uh, really delved into this semester in, in trusts and estates with how to make ensure that the client is executing a will that represents his or her will. So we'll be talking about these issues some more this afternoon. Um, the other concern that, that we have, that I have, is litigation. Um, we want to make sure that there won't be an increase in litigation in the will contest area. And even if a remotely uh, witnessed will is admitted to probate, it doesn't ensure that it won't be challenged. The will won't be contested by relatives. And some of these contests may be frivolous, but they'll still be brought. The increase in litigation is not good because of course it uses up estate assets, delays administration. Um, so, so those are okay. uh, many of the concerns that I see. Well, let's then let's explore some of them. I, uh, perhaps we can explore them in turn. Uh, Ms. Ms. Dalio, if you could maybe first speak about the the undue influence, the disadvantage, if you will, of doing everything remotely in terms of making assessments about competency, influence, et cetera, you know, from the perspective of your practice. Sure. Maybe first, if it's okay, I'm going to just give a quick overview of, of what the executor executive order provides and, and that may then um, inform also why it's it's such a challenge. So the executive order in and of itself is wonderful because it allows this remote witnessing and this remote notarization. But but in addition to allowing the remote witnessing and notarization, it requires that um, the individual who is um, attesting as a notary or, or witnessing um, that he, he or she takes some additional steps. And those steps, uh, included in those steps are on the same day that that document is um, remotely witnessed or notarized, that individual is required to have a copy of the page that was witnessed or notarized so that they can affix their signature or their notary stamp on it on that day. As you can imagine, if you're already dealing with an individual who may be in a facility or elderly and at home, um, challenging enough to get the documents to them to, to set up the remote notarization, then you have to take it an additional step and you have to find a way to get the, those documents scanned and emailed back to you on that same day or fact or, or whatever the case is. Um, so that, that adds a little bit of a, of a, a challenge. Um, and then within 30 days, you have to have the, the original document back and you have to notarize that document. So there's, there are additional steps that are required of, of this remote process. So um, in, in my view, the additional steps open up a, a um, sort of an opening for additional challenges. Um, so if we talk about um, the points that Professor Sepulitz raised, if you're um, on a uh, some sort of a device with an elderly person and, and you're remote notarizing or remote witnessing, I'm sorry, a will, how do you know that there's not somebody off camera to the side of them that's influencing them? How do you know if you're writing in your notes that they were alone 
How do you really know that they're alone if they're on a video screen? Um, it, it, is, it is possible, but more challenging to do an appropriate assessment um, evaluation with respect to their capacity because you've got the added challenge of speaking to somebody through a, a, uh, an electronic device and that person is, is not as computer savvy as we are, as our children are because they didn't grow up uh, using computers and using FaceTime and using iPads. So um, all of those issues add a second layer of challenge. That being said, um, there's a, um, a convenience to it and, and an opportunity that, that we wouldn't otherwise have, particularly, again, with elderly clients and clients who are in a facility because you can't get to them. So if, if, it's, if it's the only thing that you can do and the only way that you can get a signature, then it, it, it's, it's certainly something to consider. But as I was discussing with Professor Sepulwitz, I use it only as a last resort. So I, I've not, I've not taken advantage of it um, unless I've had to. I, Professor Sepulwitz, uh, your experiences either with your simulations or from an academic perspective? I agree with um, all of the comments that this is a should be a temporary measure, uh, and that it is based on, you asked about simulations, based on, on what you said, there have been, even in a recent case that was decided uh, up in Broome County, it was, I believe, the first uh, litigation, first decision that admitted uh, where the will was challenged and the will was admitted to probate. There was a some question about the angle of the camera on the iPhone. So, those are all issues that can come up and we can we certainly deal with them because we're remote so in many ways we're seeing and we see the the problems because we can only see a little bit of our students they can see only a little bit of each other and the simulation that i use this year actually dealt with uh, someone who was in an assisted living facility uh, was basically being uh, cared for out by one child who was available and who seemed loving, but one never knows. And then there were two other siblings who were professionally very busy, didn't have as much time. And the question became whether this child who was hovering a bit over the parent could effectively be evaluated in terms of was it undue influence or was it a devoted child? And what I did was I created um, several different groups, each with the same client, same child, uh, same lawyer, but obviously played by different people. And it was fascinating how the roles changed in each group. In one group, the child was clearly trying to unduly influence. But when I say clearly, it was only after some questioning and investigation. It wasn't clear immediately from my perspective looking in because I couldn't see everything and I couldn't uh, see what the paper, even what the papers were that were being passed back and forth. 
in another simulation, the child was great, it was a loving child, was handling everything well. But it's that inability to see the whole picture. I mean, maybe if we had a wider camera and we had a wider view, a broad, a big screen, uh, we could see more. But even then, it is, that aspect of it is very troubling. And I just want to add that before COVID, the, the Uniform Probate Code, which is not in effect in New York, has a provision for, uh, certainly for attested wills, wills that are witnessed by uh, witness, attesting witnesses, but also for notarized wills, where the testator can sign in front of a notary, and that's recognized under the UPC, but it's not a popular provision. And the reason for that is, again, that the notary is, is not there to evaluate. The attesting witnesses are supposed to be there to, to make sure that we don't have undue influence, we have confidence, and of course that the attorney is supervising the will. So we have, I think, pre-COVID knowledge as well that this is a danger and we wanna make sure that the will is the intent, represents the intent of the testator. Of course, we always point out that the test, the best evidence, it's not the best evidence rule, it's the worst evidence rule because after death, the testator isn't there to say, this is what I wanted. Mm -hmm. so I think, I'm sorry. No, no, uh, Attorney Dalio, I, I was going to ask you to continue. Uh, and as you continue, I mean, I invite you to, to comment as you will. But also, I did find it very interesting that despite the orders from the governor uh, and the difficulty, difficulty of the times, you recognize the advantages and disadvantages, but are so concerned that you use this only as a last resort. The, so the, the orders don't dictate that you use it only as a last resort. I, as a, in, a, in my practice, have decided to use it only as a last resort. And I think, I think in, it, for me, that is in part because of the population that I do serve. I, um, I'm first an elder law attorney. So the bulk of, of my clients are elderly. I have many clients who are institutionalized. And unfortunately, in my relatively short career, I've, I've seen too many challenges. Of, of documents and, and too many unhappy family members. So we want to, to I, I for myself want to make sure that when I can be present with my clients and watch them and interact with them, that I make that happen. And, and that for me means sometimes traveling to their homes. I was sharing with Professor Sepowitz that I actually sat outside of a window of an assisted living to, to watch the remote notarization myself. To the point of the camera, I think it's very interesting that that was an issue in the case. Um, I often ask the client, and when I'm asking the client, I'm typically speaking to one or more of their kids, but I ask them to move the camera around. So it may be that while they're signing, I have them face the camera um, on the paper and the pen and then I ask them to pick the actual document up, and then I'll ask them to, to reposition um, the camera at the client's face while I'm speaking to them. So often, at, as part of the process, we're moving and repositioning the camera 
so that I can say that I watched the document get signed, that I had a conversation with the client, that I saw the signature. And you can't do that from one camera angle. So, um, that, you know, that's another another interesting piece. Okay. And, and you've both mentioned, uh, Professor Sepulitz, you talked about your fear that there would be more litigation. Uh, Attorney uh, Dalio, you said you're in your own practicing, your own practice, you're seeing unhappy family members. Uh, so perhaps we could talk about the litigation uh, aspect of this and, and you know, you feel some of the negatives that might flow given the situation. I guess, Professor Sepulitz, you could begin that discussion for us or, or right. continue it. Again, I had mentioned before that the concern is twofold. One is that there may be an increase in will contests, many of which may be frivolous. In other words, this can be an opportunity for disgruntled relatives to sue to overturn a will because, again, we don't have the in-person supervision, not that there aren't not that there aren't uh, will contests that are uh, brought that are frivolous uh, before COVID under the statute, but I, I think that there certainly may be an increase. Um, the if, if, I, if I may just ask, just ask for a, a tiny elaboration. So, is your concern that despite the fact that these signings, et cetera, comport with uh, the regulations, it will nonetheless give an opportunity for challenge, the fact that they comport with regulation just won't prevent these legal challenges. Is that correct? Yes, in my correct. Because we, again, we can't assess what's going on in the room. The formality may comport with practice, but whether there's undue influence, of course, is not set forth. I mean, there's the in, in, the, in these regulations, uh, we know from that undue influence is one of the most common types of common bases for a will contest and also lack of capacity. The lack of capacity may be more easy, in many ways may be easier to assess than the undue influence, but they frequently come together, go together. So I am concerned about that. And of course, I'm concerned that there are wills that are being signed that may not reflect the, the will of the testator. So um, there may be more justifiable will contests as well. Um, and what we always want to do, and I always tell my students that we want to ensure that the will is not contested to the, the best way we can. Um, and sometimes it means giving up something. And here the giving up may be some convenience to attorneys post COVID. Right. It's more time right. to be present. Uh, when I was in practice, I also, there were clients who I visited um, because they couldn't come to the office. They physically couldn't come. And I would go there with witnesses. Very different from, from looking at a screen, from looking mm -hmm. at a, a camera. Yeah. Please, uh, 
Attorney Davio, go, go ahead, please. Uh, comment I, on litigation or, or your practice experience relevant here. Sure, I, I agree with that. And I think one of the, when once you're in a will contest, one of the strongest tools that you have as an attorney is to be able to answer in a deposition what your practice is and that you never deviate from that standard practice. And so um, although convenient, what the statute has done is now thrown sort of a monkey wrench into that standard practice. And so um, you can no longer say you never deviate because of course there are now different ways to do things. And then for me, the question also became these extra two or three steps that you have to take after the, the remote notarization or after the remote signing, um, is that going to open up another avenue for people to challenge? Because although remote notarization itself was um, authorized and approved, um, how do we then prove that we followed these secondary steps? It, it's certainly challenging and, and from a record keeping standpoint, it's quite, it's quite difficult. So um, again, back to Professor Seplowitz's point, uh, you know, as a, as a person who drafts wills and, and, and um, supervises the execution of the wills, the, the formality of that process is, is so very important. And it's what, it's what protects our clients and ensures that the, the wishes in their will um, are going to be followed. So uh, although um, convenient and in some cases necessary, uh, again, for me, only when it's absolutely, absolutely necessary. And it, it almost sounds, both, both of you have mentioned sort of the post-COVID post world. Uh, it almost sounds like, uh, Attorney uh, Dalio, that you just articulated this, the post-COVID standard. Uh, there may be a role for technology post-COVID, but it sounds like you believe from an academic and practical perspective, uh, it needs to be limited only to the most extreme cases where there appears to be no choice but to take advantage, advantage of the convenience technology offers. Would you, would you both agree with that? I guess, Professor Sepulitz, would you agree with that as a, some sort of post-COVID world standard? Yes, I do. I, I think maybe we should have an exception. If we have a statute, for instance, that uh, codifies some of the regulations, we should think about it as an exception. Uh, and the circum emergency circumstances could even be specified in, in the statute, uh, making clear that this is not a standard that we want. Okay, please go ahead, Attorney Dalio, please. Yeah, I, I would agree. I don't know. I know that there's talk about a, a statute that's codifying these um, remote notarization and remote witness, um, but I would agree that it should really be only in an emergency situation and 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 that there should be some um, some recognition of of that being done maybe in the witness attestation page or something just so that that it's it's clear um, why it was done that way and and what was done. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, that's very interesting. Uh, as is often the case, these podcasts tend to, to fly by. Uh, we still have a little bit more time. Uh, Professor Seplitz, I, I invite you to sort of emphasize any 
Any final points, whether it's summarizing your primary concerns or directing us to something new uh, that this COVID environment has inflicted on us? You've asked a lot of uh, questions that I think relate not only to Wills, obviously, but also to uh, education and practice in general. But it also um, raises a, a, a different issue, and but something related to the estates area, and that's the new legislation that was passed authorizing uh, powers of attorney that are much more user-friendly. Okay. So the positive aspect here on a related point, of course, relates to advanced directives and uh, facilitate so many transactions for people who can't go out. And here we have a recognition that the older provisions put a lot of obstacles uh, and made it hard for the power of attorney to be used. So um, this legislation has eased, eased these regulations up without the concerns of uh, undue influence, without the concerns of the same concerns that we had in the remote notarization and witnessing area. And I think, uh, Robin, you had similar similar views on the power. I do. I, the power of attorney statute that was passed back in 2010 um, in really in response to um, agents taking advantage of the principal using the document um, was an onerous statute and it was a power of attorney document that was hard to hard to execute, hard to understand there was a strict compliance statute. So it almost went too far in the other direction. So um, thankfully this spring coming soon, uh, New York will have a new power of attorney statute that will allow um, a little bit more ease in the execution and the use of the document. So um, it'll be interesting to see how, how these two issues work together going forward. And just to give you an example, the language doesn't have to be exact. Right. Before you, you, you deviated a little from the statute and that was it. And when you're talking about the client population here, having that rigid adherence to form over substance um, was really punitive in nature. So that's, a, I, I think, a very positive outcome. Um, whether I think we would have had it even without the change, without COVID, but certainly COVID, uh, I think, accelerated the process. Agreed. Okay. Agreed. All right. Well, it's always nice to end on agreement. It's and it's always my sad uh, duty to bring these discussions to a close. Uh, but close we must. And I thank you both very much for your participation. There'll be some information online uh, for folks who listen to this podcast and get further information about our panelists and this issue. And so once again, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you.